Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. To the Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get going with today's episode, we need to thank our newest patron, Alexandria. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about the bonus episodes and gifts that our patrons get over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast, where you can support the show with a monthly subscription or like lots of folks have been doing, you can get a sneaky little 15% discount if you pledge an annual amount. Either way, or if you just want to chill with us and listen and tell folks about us and leave reviews, all of those things support us and are so helpful and we love it all. Thank you. This week, we conclude our informal two-part series on overlooked questions of archaeology. Last episode, new episode that we released, uh, <laughs> the question was, how do we know that? How does our knowledge change over time? And this week, we've got questions like, how long ago was the past? Um, and this is something that I have been thinking about since I was a kid when I saw um, – Timothy Ferris is, he did a show for, um, PBS, but he also wrote a book. Um, and it's called Life Beyond Earth. And mm-hmm. he did this exercise where he like got in a car and like drove and it showed sort of like distance through time and space. Sure. And yeah. it like blew my mind. Like, cause I'm just like, <laughs> we're so small. We've not been here at all. Like we, like, We've barely oh, existed. Well, there's going to be more of that. So. I know. I know. And so that's sort of, I, I think that we, um, I just, I, I think that we have trouble as like our, our human brains. I think they have trouble like comprehending the scale of, of just how, how long things take, how far things are from one another, how long yeah. it takes to get from one place to another, how long things have existed and that we just kind of look at, you know, it's that idea of like the flat past. We just yeah. look back there and it's just like before. Yeah, exactly. And like that's kind of, that's kind of it. And so, um, you know, even when you do study, like when you study history and you study archaeology, especially when you're studying archaeology, like back to, um, as a lot of places do, you'll do survey of an air of a region and you go into like very deep time. And, and that's even just like the time that humans were kicking around. So like not even like pretty shallow time. If you look mm-hmm. at like, the age of the universe or the age of the planet. Oh, um, hang on. No spoilies. Oh. What you, could you possibly have spoiled? <laughs> oh, God. But oh, we're, we're getting to but, it. But like when you think about that, you just think like, oh, this period lasted from this time to this time. And you don't really think about that's several thousand years and, and just sort of like well, what did people what it wasn't It wasn't just like a static. It's not just like a static frame. It's not like a slideshow, like a like a old like boop and then you change oh, the or like the um the stereo stereo um 
those little things that the visor that you put to your eyes and then yeah. you click and it, yeah. 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 So it's not, it's not one of those things where it's just an image and that's the, that's this past, this, this period. No, and the, the next past one is, is like dynamic and very dynamic past. Um, and so this <laughs> week I thought that, um, we could just, uh, have some fun sharing things that we've learned in the, the past, um, week or so about, um, the past, about the past. Let's talk about yeah. the past. Yeah. Well, okay. So if we're sharing things we learned as children, yes. I have something to contribute that I learned as okay. a child. <laughs> so listeners, you can do this along with Amber and me at home. So Amber, we're going to do a little activity. Oh boy. If you're driving, listeners, pull over before you try this. Okay. So Amber, I'd like you to hold one arm straight out parallel to the floor. It doesn't matter which arm and you don't actually have to hold it there. And oh, you don't, don't want me to your... hold it in front of the camera? Like where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to see your face for this, but okay. Okay. I'm holding my arm out. Okay. So we're going to pretend that the distance from your shoulder to your fingertips of your one arm shoulder? represents the entirety of the time our planet has existed. Okay. So are you, you with me? My nails so far? are a little long. Is that? That's okay. That's okay. all right. Mm-hmm. Then at your shoulder, the Big Bang happens, and then our Earth coalesces, and then we've got all the history. Of I'm sorry, Earth Anna. From your shoulder to your fingertips, what? The Big Bang did not create Earth. I know it didn't. It, okay, it created the material from which the Earth. Okay, I just want to make sure that, together. I know we don't have a ton of space guys listening, but like, put away universe, your emails. Everyone, the universe was around for a lot longer. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, like maybe like the distance between your shoulder and the other tip of your fingers is big bang time or so. I don't know. So at your shoulder is the formation of the earth about 4.6 billion years ago, billion with a B. So travel all the way from your shoulder to where your wrist meets your palm. That is the origin of animal life. So there's no animal life on earth for that whole span until around 800 to 900 million years ago. So so this was the period during which the earth was cold because the core hadn't been ignited according to the Zeta Reticulum. The pilot light was off. That, that yeah. folks learned about a couple weeks ago. That's not how, that's not what happened. Just to be absolutely clear, we are describing something that's not true. I guess if I clarified that like the Big Bang happened like a good 10 billion years before the earth was formed... It, it warrants clarification that Zeta yeah, Reticulans did just, not. <laughs> just in case people didn't listen to our uh, From the Vault Ancient Astronomy episode and have no idea what you're talking about. They're writing a um, review and being like, one of these hosts, one of these hosts doesn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we trade off not knowing things. Okay, so your hand uh-huh. is the origin, like where your hand starts, that's the origin of animal is life. Life. At around your knuckles, we've got first one, the first set, the first set of knuckles. Mm -hmm. We've got the Cambrian explosion, where suddenly there is a proliferation of new species. So your knuckles go, yeah, like trilobites everywhere. Oh god. Okay, so between the second and third knuckles, traveling towards your the ends of your fingers, between the second and third knuckles of your uh longest finger, that's Uh where the dinosaurs go. That's the entire span of basically of dinosaurs. On the planet. And so what about humans? What about them? Take an emery board and run it once or twice along the fingernail of your longest finger. You don't actually have to do this. You've just shaved off the entirety of human evolution. 
Everything from our earliest bipedal hominin ancestors to you and me sitting and recording this podcast right now is just a wisp of fingernail dust in comparison to the stretch of time that the earth has been around. So I have a question for you. When you Do wrote you need this a paper down, bag to hyperventilate when into? When you wrote this down in the script, did you think it would make me cry? I thought it was either that or you would go into sort of um, catatonic stillness. But I see we've gone for crying. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So so we're just a little a little wisp of cosmic fingernail dust. But if we zoom in on that, the density of stuff that has gone on in the entirety of human existence that makes it seem like an incredibly long time. And so it's always an issue of scale. So that's why I perked up when you were like, ah, yes, the deep past and scale. Yeah. So it really depends what scale you're looking at, because if we're looking at the scale of life on earth, then it's a much longer totality of time than the time that we little, you know, bipedal things have been, have been capering around on the planet. So, it's not surprising that people who study things that happened in the past spend a lot of time arguing about what constitutes an age or how to denote time spans that are consistent across a discipline like history or archaeology, which is kind of impossible because they're not. Things happen at different times in different places. And so what you end up with is depending on what region you're in, you get a whole different set of of chronologies that don't necessarily sync up with anything from anywhere else. That's it is complicated. And also, it's really important, and, and Amber mentioned it up top, but it's important to remember that the past was never, and also the present isn't, and so there's no reason to think that the past was inert. So people were moving around, they were interacting, they were doing things all over the place. And so when you think about one population in one place, it can sometimes be very easy to see things in a vacuum, but they weren't. For example, and we've covered this before, but at different times in our evolutionary history, there were multiple types of human bopping around the world. Sometimes they interacted, sometimes they didn't. For example, my favorite example, Homo erectus was around at the same time as Gigantopithecus, which is not a type of human, but still uh, a now extinct species of primate. Um, so we would have seen like nine foot apes around, wild. Neanderthals... Uh, the, no, more kind of like gorillas in that they, they can were, stand on on two like legs if they wanted walking? to. Like well, that, that's, that's the thing because of... remember when we talked about Gigantopithecus, we have almost none of their uh, bones. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, like yeah. a jaw fragment and some yeah. teeth. We don't so. even have the the part that we don't have. We don't have the hole the spine goes into. The foramen mag, yeah, the yeah, foramen magnum, I, yeah. That's what I thought it was, but I was like, oh, what if you're wrong? And then you, like you sound super dumb like that you just like made up something but okay so but but that would if we knew where if we had a foramen magnum that we would it wouldn't be, able be to, a it we, wouldn't be a smoking gun like it wouldn't tell for sure but it would be an indicator sure okay so but, it's actually not as as in like a indicative of because that that, that would tell us about the orientation whether they're yeah, in landscape so is, or portrait. Yeah, exactly. So it is indicative of whether a species spends most of its time on two legs or four legs, but it's tough to tell, especially with species that split their time, sort of, like a lot of our close primate ancestors. But the, re um, the reason that we think that uh, Gigantopithecus was sort of 
mostly quadrupedal is because genetically they're very, very similar to living, uh, to orangutans. Hmm. So, so we can sort of speculate that their locomotion would have been similar so that, you know, they would have, um, spent time in trees. Maybe, I don't know. Cause they're so big. Like, could they get up into trees? I'm not sure. But if the they were walking bigger? around, <laughs> well, I, yeah, maybe. Oh. Um, but you know, they would have um, done sort of knuckle walking and, and stuff like, like, uh, orangutans do. Okay. So Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo sapiens, and Homo floresiensis all overlapped at different times, not necessarily in different places, but in different parts of the world, all these species were around. Um, Homo lucinensis as well, but that's a pretty newly discovered species and I don't know much about it. So I just know the time frame that they were around. And so, so this, this was, is something was that- it- Actually, yes. okay. So you're saying it overlapped at different times. So this is where we're where I'm starting to get into what I keep thinking about in terms of would I, Joe Homo, know what I know? Like, could I in my lifetime know a Neanderthal and a Denisovan? There, I mean, there was enough time of overlap for that to be a possibility, but I don't really know that I don't think we have a fine enough resolution of, of a picture of where each group was at any given point to know if they really would have overlapped. But, but we know that they were physically that Neanderthals and Denisovans and Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were physically in the same place at the same time, at least enough times for them to have interbred. Right. Right. That, that implies uh, and so physical proximity. Do we have and do the examples that we have are they sort of one parent who is uh Denisovan, one parent mm-hmm. who is Neanderthal or is it something mm-hmm. there is admixture somewhere back there and and that both of those there. things are the case. Okay. Okay. So there so, are individuals where cuz you can tell how many generations back the ancestry came from. Right. So for example there are uh, Homo sapiens remains found in Bachokiro Cave in Bulgaria, where um, six, I think it is, six generations back, there was some Neanderthal admixture. Okay. So, I mean, that's not that far in the past. So these groups were mixing it up. They were, I don't know, they were dating. I don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so these groups were, were together at the same place at some point. Um, there's also the issue of timelines within a species, like what you specifically asked me to talk about um, a couple episodes ago with with terminology like archaic yeah, or yeah, yeah. versus modern at, at either end of a, of a species timeline, like with Homo sapiens or Homo erectus, in order to account for evolutionary change in appearance over time. And so that's really a terminology that speaks more to scientists in a lab looking at things and trying to communicate effectively with one another than it mm. does to actual time. Right. It okay. doesn't, it's, it's just a, it's sort of, this one's earlier, this one comes later. It's, it's that kind of idea. And so as archaeologists, the way that we tend to mark chronologies is by noting distinctive materials or technologies, etc. But that's not a consistent measure across spaces, especially the giant geographic ranges that we see for, for a lot of human time. And so just as a frustrating example, In Europe, there's the lower, middle, and upper Paleolithic. The middle Paleolithic is characterized by Neanderthals. Lower Paleolithic is sort of Neanderthal ancestors. um, And then upper Paleolithic is Homo sapiens. In Africa, there's the early 
Stone Age, which is around 3 million years ago to 300,000 years ago, the Middle Stone Age, 280 to 50,000 years ago, and the Late Stone Age, which is 50 to 39,000 years ago. And only some of those overlap in any way. They're roughly similar, but not exactly the same, either in the time ranges or the broad trends of, of cultural or even species change. And so the, you see the start of the same problem as soon as you get past the, the Neolithic into like the Metal Ages, Iron Age, Bronze Age, the time spans differ depending on where in the world you are. So it's sort of dizzying to keep up with. And, and as much as we might kind of, as archaeologists trying to make things simpler for ourselves, as much as we might want kind of a universal way of looking at time, that's not how the past worked. And so there's really no hope of that. And so I don't, I don't have a resolution there for you. I, okay. I just... Just time is complicated. That's that's all I wanted to sure bring to this table. <laughs> so okay. how do we um, – and this – I have one more brief section that I genuinely don't know if it will make you cry or not. So oh, hold on to your butt, I guess. Um, so how do we think of time based on actual lives? How long is a generation? The time between when someone is born and when they themselves reproduce, which is sort of you know a very clinical way to describe a generation. Depends on when in time we're looking, and I'm sticking with Homo sapiens here. But roughly, let's say that a generation is somewhere between 15 and 25 years. I'm basing that on the fact that 15 is roughly the age of sexual maturity in humans, and a modern generation in the Western world is around 25 years. So let's take the average and say 20 years. Is that is that reasonable? Thank you. Okay, so the last Neanderthals died out around 40,000 years ago. That's 2,000 generations. So, okay, sure. That's a really long time. That's 2,000 lifespans lived at least until reproduction, if you think about it that way. 2,000 generations. The beginning of agriculture was at, at its very earliest, as far as we know, around 14,000 years ago. That is 650 generations so there's these big milestones of, of human time. But if you start thinking about them in generations, you can see both how vast the difference is in terms of human lives lived, but also how small that difference is between what we think of as these big leaps in time. The invention of writing in Mesopotamia was around 5,500 years ago. That is only 275 generations ago. The Middle Ages in Europe were a thousand-ish years ago. That is only 50 generations, 50 sets of ancestors. That's it. Slavery was abolished in the United States in 1865, give or take a couple of years for some states. Whoops. That is 156 years or less than eight generations. So the past, when we break it down, is not as far away as we think it is, if we yeah. think about it in terms of lifespans. And I think also, and that's just looking at just sort of the numerical sort of average lifespan. When we think mm -hmm. about actual lives um, and sort of the, uh, you think about you know, in my family, there were four generations alive at the same time. Um, and mm -hmm. so you have that, that overlap and you think about the, the effect of, of sort of the presence of, and being able to learn firsthand. Um, the, I'll have it in the show notes, but, um, uh, there's a woman, um, who was named Matilda McCreer and she died in 1940. Um, and she was the last, so, at her death in 1940, that was the death of the um, last survivor 
of the middle passage. So she was, wow. ab- she was abducted uh, from her home at the age of two, two ish. Mm-hmm. And um, she was brought to the U S uh, enslaved. And uh, she was one of the youngest, one of the youngest yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that of, of, individuals who had been um, kidnapped and and enslaved and brought on I think the slave ship was named the Clotilda and it, I think it was its last it's, run yeah the Clotilda is currently off the shore of one of the Carolinas I think and and they're doing archaeological work on it yeah yeah and so she um, she lived until 1940 hmm. and and so you have um, so her family, and so in situation, and so I'll have the story. It's on National Geographic, but in I mean, my grandparents were alive in 1940. Yeah, that's my, that's very close. Like that's my, that time yeah. is close. So you know, this is somebody that, um, yeah, you know, my my grandmother was born in 1927, and so there she could have. She could have known if, you know, we were in a different place, uh, like if we if we were in a different place, she could have known this person. And so mm-hmm. there are people that um, and then she could have told me. And so you have like the, the closeness of these events. Um, and so there's the in the sort of in the 90s and like in the aughts, the early aughts, there was in the U.S. there was a um, this this push to capture the memories and the testimonies and oral histories of um, individuals who had participated in World War II, individuals yeah, I think who I had, remember that um, what well, and and um, Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and people that who had part es- especially yeah people who had escaped the Nazi genocide and like come to the U.S. and there was this um, there there was this sort of fear that we would forget like the, lose like those stories nationally yeah. we would forget um and and so there was this movement to capture that and and you th- and we think about like we the sort of generational impact of you know so we say that a generation is 30 years but you can have four generations or and you know in my lifetime i We'll probably know two more. And, and so just sort of like the, the way that generations overlap. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I'm from a, I'm from a community and a family where the, the, the age gap between birth and childbirth of one's own child is, is, is smaller than the national average, um, mm. in the U.S. But, and there are, you know, people that, um, it's, they have children later. Who in turn have to? Yeah, end. that's my family's and, more along along the yeah. ladder. But you have like you have these opportunities for knowing, having overlap of several generations, mm-hmm. and that um, flattens time too. Yeah, and it's a whole another. I think it's a whole another episode to to talk about the social impact of overlapping generations and yeah. Sort of what that has to, you know, because there's the all of the studies about the sort of grandmother effect and how, you know, pre in prehistory, um, postmenopausal women were probably really, really important in terms of uh, keeping a social group functioning in terms of mm-hmm. childcare and yeah, and it's a whole other cohesion, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's something that's very powerful to think about, and mm-hmm. especially when we think about how many was it. 
um, middle ages, 50, 50 generations. That, yeah. You know. Which is, it's enough to see, it's like still enough in the, you know, the thing with the grain, grains of rice on a chessboard where you, you double, you put one grain on the first square mm-hmm. and then you double it and then you double it and you do and And very, very quickly you have just this exponentially increased number. Um, yeah. When you have 50 sets of ancestors, that is, it's still more people than have lived, I think, yeah. in Europe. Yeah. And so, they, so it's I, like, that's why that, like, Charlemagne is everyone, you're, everyone Europeans yeah. Yeah. descended from Charlemagne. But, yeah. but if we think about, um, but if you think about continuity of narratives and tradition and oral history, yeah. it makes it a lot easier because we, so we, you and I do not live in a society that has strong oral history um, no sort of methods um it's and we'll and in in the new year we'll have um we'll we'll do an episode about oral history and and sort of like transmission of knowledge like so we so it's it's easy for folks from uh sort of societies and backgrounds similar to ours to assume that things would get like muddled or get lost or or that you know details would change over time that it's sort of oral history is not the same thing as a game of telephone. Uh, And, and so when you think about these numbers, when you think about like 50 sets of generations being hundreds of years ago, if you're all, if you are passing down a story, if you're passing down a history, a narrative of some type, maybe 30 times, because the way that. Right. The overlaps would, the overlap of generations. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not, not that very many times. long. That's yeah. not many times. Um, that's that's not many. T- that's not many times to take to a model. document and copy it the yeah. way that like books used to be produced. If we want to think about it in that way, that you take a book sure. and you copy the book, and then you have the copy of the book, and then you can take it to another monastery and they copy. The and book. then you send the copy back and keep the the real one at the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> Basically, that's yeah. a callback. Yeah, and so that's something to think about. Like that's not. That's not yeah. much time. Like that's it's not, and yet and, it is, and yet it is. Yeah. So um, let's take a quick break and give my my dog a chance to shut up. Just and then, really, and then you can tell me how far stuff was in the past. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Okay, so we're back, and our second act is dedicated to the question, how far away was the past? Um, and in trying to, like, find some real, like, numbers for this, um, Google kept trying to get me to look into time travel. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't. I don't know how to. That's beyond the scope of yeah anything that we do here. I found a very I mean, a very appealing story that was like, what's the earliest instance of time travel showing up as a theme? Oh, in, in like in in, in story in story. Yeah, yeah. I didn't read it, so oh, I'll read it next year. I hope, I hope yeah. I was gonna say I hope you um. <laughs> bookmarked it or something um yeah yeah i i did so um so let's let's begin with just like a a quick so you know we look at google maps let's go to google maps and that's take me away let's go from nineveh to babylon okay and and so if we were to do that in a car in a car yeah um and we would be we would be going from mosul to hilly we would be sure they aren't Sure. They aren't Nineveh and Babylon now. They got sacked. Uh, so if we <laughs> if if we were going from there to there, from point A to point uh-huh. B, point N to point B, um, huh. it's five hundred and fifty kilometers. So that's about three hundred and forty-two miles. Um, far. It's it's you know it's a good day's drive. So it's about it's a six-hour drive oh, in a car. Thinking about it, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, and it's a pretty quick flight. And so I'm starting to think like, well, how long would it take you to get somewhere in the past? Um, and so they didn't have cars. They didn't have cars then. It's true. Um, so let's look at our options. First option. I got, got, I got feet. You got feet. Okay. I got feet. So I tried looking into like how far, like someone who can walk would walk in a day. Tried to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just like a lot of people trying to like tell me about my steps. I'm just like, that's not what I'm going that's for here. That's not helpful. No. Um, so I I found, <laughs> and then I read some, um, I read some stuff about like preppers, read some prepper stuff, which I was going to, I was going to ask if you uh, got into sort of ultra marathoner territory. Or no, anything. I don't know. Uh-huh. It's me. So I didn't go into ultra marathon territory. I went into bug out bag territory uh, right, because also, because also ultra marathon runners are not a good indicator of how fast and far anyone can go because oh, ultra marathon runners are um, special I- elite 
athlete, highly specialized athletes who also aren't carrying stuff with them and also like don't have like pack animals. So that's, I was trying to, trying to get a sense of like, if, if it's you walking with your stuff um, or with some stuff, or you have stuff on a pack animal, what would it, what would that look? Pack animals make all, all sounds. So um, I've, I've read, okay. So the prepper who I, I won't include in the show notes, prepper who said that a family, a family with young children may only make it about five miles a day. Um, but also okay. this is like very like highly conjectural, like LARPy kind yeah. of stuff yeah. of like, I don't know that anyone has. Prep LARPing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that this is. Live action role prepping. Yes, exactly. Um, so lots of through hikers. So that's why I, I tried to think about backpackers. I tried to think yeah. about backpackers. No, that's a good. Because with, with through hiking, you are proxy. moving on foot, you are trying. You are trying to get somewhere. Sometimes you're you're trying to make it to a destination. You have yeah, usually. You, you are often setting up camp, or you're stopping at like designated rest areas. Either that's where the campground is, or or whatever. And you are more or less responsible for anything that you're going to eat, anything you are going to use to buy anything and you occasionally resupply. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's sort of, that's the idea that I'm trying to think about that. Okay. So what does that break um, down to? Experienced through hikers can, can move about 25 miles a day. That's so um, and that's if like the point is hiking, like if the point yeah, is yeah. getting there. Um, although um, REI, the recreational equipment incorporated. So um the adventure store the store not sponsored it's a co-op um they they say quote most people will plan to hike three to ten miles per day depending on what shape you're in and how much elevation gain there is um and so that's that's something to think about so so we're um because we can't (laughs) we ought not assume that everybody in the past was like super fit super fit yeah yeah oh no <laughs> um we 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 don't need to we we don't need to think about that and also like no. we we need it's to think range. about um the conditions within which people are sleeping um that you know you are not um if you have any kind of mobility um issues or anything that may be exacerbated by sleeping outside on the ground when it's cold like it sciatica. might make yeah it might make your sciatic flare up it could make like any kind of joint issues yeah. or if you're traveling stiff. with uh elderly folks or yeah babies, or yeah if you're, baby if folks. you're traveling in a group just in general mm-hmm. so thinking like somewhere between three and 25 miles a day if we are going from f- going 342 miles that's that takes you a while it does and that's it only from you- Nineveh to Babylon. Yeah, I which said is Babylon. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's not far. That is um, both of those were in the core of the Assyrian Empire, um, mm-hmm. and they're currently in the same country. Um, and so that's not going real far. So I want to think about some other things that we have <laughs> as our options. And here we have. What, what if I decide that? Two legs bad. What if I decide that I want 
Four legs. Four feet on tippy toes with weird nails. <laughs> yeah, preferably standing on, on one single finger on each leg. Yeah. So once again, <clears throat> horse. So once again, I bring up horses, the animal You're a horse I, girl now. I'm not a... Uh, yeah. Um, mm. So I looked up how horses do. I like, and, I like the title of this table. Uh, so, yeah. And I just took a screenshot of this, this table called horse speed. Um, and, and so this is, this, this can give maybe you like I don't know much about horses apart from the things that stand at the fences and sometimes bite your rings in half when you try to feed them carrots. Yikes. Horses. So, okay. So we've got, so horse, so the speed this the relative speed at which a horse is moving is called the gait. Um, yep. And so a walk, that's an average speed of 4.3 miles per hour. So that's close to seven kilometers an hour. For people, I think the average is like a 20 minute mile. So that's like three miles an hour. Yeah, we're three. I was just thinking about human walking is three ish miles an hour. Okay. And just so, thinking about comparing them. Yeah. So horses can walk uh, are horses can readily walk slightly faster than human. Mm -hmm. Um, so it works well if your stuff is on your horse and you are walking the horse. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then the next, the next tier is trot. Next next gear up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you (laughs) drop your horse into second, um, it's eight to 12 miles per hour, which is, 13 to 20 kilometers an hour. So yes, that is faster. And then faster than that is a canter, um, Mm -hmm. 10, which is 10 to 17 miles per hour, which is, uh, 16 to 27 kilometers an hour. And then the fastest, so mock horse is a gallop (laughs) and that's going 25 to 30 miles per hour. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's pretty good. But, as you might think, guess, mm-hmm. unsustainable. Your your average horse um, can't do much galloping beyond two miles, so three kilometers without fatigue. So that's just sort of you're just kind of quick burst. You can't Going hell for leather. Run. So it's not like it's not like in movie. It's not like in movie when horse run like that's not no it, horse often gallop far 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 far. In movie. In movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you can only, so you max out your horse at about two miles if you're in a gallop and at a trot. So much, mm-hmm. much more reasonable speed. So remember yeah. a trot is eight a light miles jog. per hour. Um, you can only, so the horse has to rest at about 20 miles after about 20 miles. Oh, okay. So if you are, just walking with horse, um, you or you can ride the horse. You can ride your horse between twenty-five and thirty-five miles without rest. So that means you can go about twenty between twenty-five and thirty-five miles a day, um, riding a horse, which is faster, unless you are one of those like super fast through hikers. So the looking at RAI's average of three to ten miles on human foot a uh-huh. day, you can go a lot more quickly, 25 to 35 miles in a day on a horse. So, yeah. um, this revolutionary, this, this 
content on horse speed um, also says an average trail horse in decent shape can withstand a journey of 50 miles. So it's 80 and a half kilometers in one day, while a fit endurance competitor will be able to travel even 100 miles, 161 kilometers in a day. On the other hand, most of them can't endure a few consecutive days of riding without a day or two of rest. So you need to build that into your itinerary. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, um, so maybe this is part of what Kikuli was doing when he was trying to beef up yeah, the horse. Yeah, conditioning horses yeah. to go farther and faster. To go farther and faster with, with you on them. Um, so what if you don't want to go you got by a, land? You got an ocean horse? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's a boat. <laughs> so it's boat. Um <laughs> But let's think about sort of the availability of these things. So for uh, for most of human history, feet. For most of that little fingernail dust. Feet have been available. Yes. Horses have only been available for a few thousand years in a few places and then um, considerably more places around a couple thousand years. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's reasonable. Um, yeah. Horses, horses are um, pretty ubiquitous at this point but um but there wasn't always horse it hasn't always been an option and Mm. um, horses aren't great for getting to other continents so i i look i have some resources in the show notes telling you about how long it takes to get places by boat so if you were if we were going to go from ostia so ostia was the port um the big port outside rome Mm mm-hmm Yes. So if you were going from Ostia to Africa, so that's a 270 nautical miles. We're just trying to get to Africa. According to Pliny the Elder, um, he said that took two days. So huh. quick, quick trip. Yeah, from, I guess. So that would be to like, just kind of go to like south. Carthage. Yeah, yeah. Just, just south. So it takes you two days to get there. Um, if you were, um, going from Ostia to Gibraltar, to the uh-huh. the other is, side of the top of Africa, out, not in Africa. Um, yeah. um, Plenty of the elder says that that would take you a week. So rather yeah. than just going south, you're going west. Um, and I don't know how. And so all of these things are also dependent or heavily dependent on currents and winds. Wind. Yeah. Um, and so we think about other big big ships, um, mm-hmm. big big boat times. It took Francis Drake three years. His his crew to get three years around the world, um, and they kind of coast hugged for most of it on their big big pillaging expedition, hmm. um, and so that was the second time that the world had to to our knowledge that the world had been circumnavigated by a single entity, mm-hmm. um, and um, and then. The Mayflower, which brought the pilgrims um, to North America, that was 66 days. Yeah. It was like that over sounds, two months. Yeah. Um, sounds right. And um, so that's so you can spend a lot of time on boats. Uh, and I was trying to think about other ships and other boats and like boats that are used for maritime trade. And I thought of the Dow. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so the Dow is big, big in um, the Arabian Peninsula over to the Indian Ocean, also down to the down south of the Horn of Africa. Um, so a Dow is a relatively shallow boat. Um, that doesn't have a ton of like maneuvery stuff under the water. Keel. Um, thank you. Uh, but it has a triangular sail called a lateen sail. Mm-hmm. And, um, so the combination of its sail shape, the shape of the boat itself and its lightness means that it's really fast. Um, and they're still used today. And mm-hmm. so they've been used for thousands of years and, um, they were not great big, for super deep ocean voyages, though. You need um, that deep keel. Well, you can go super right far, but you're not just going to go. You're not going to cut through the middle of the ocean. No, like, that's what I mean. Is, You'll hug yeah, the coast. we're not doing the the shortest the shortest distance between two points um, is not, not a straight line. The best. If yeah. in the case of oceaning, um, yes. And so I found an example. I found a very cool example of. Um, a Dow that had come from somewhere in maritime Western Asia and okay. had gone to uh, Guangzhou in what's today China. Okay. And it had gotten its stuff. It had unloaded and then reloaded. This was part of the, the global Middle Ages. So this is sort of medieval, medieval trade um, okay. around the, all around the, the the Indian Ocean, so you've got okay. stuff going over to to China, to Singapore, to what's now Singapore, Indonesia. You've got it coming back, uh, going through the the islands in the Indian Ocean, Madagascar. So this was a, a trade stop at a port. They took off their stuff and they took on new cargo. They took on their stuff and then they hit a reef. Oops. Um, so they hit a reef um, and they mixed sank. up their wets and their dries. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so. Um, so it dates to, well, it dates to sometime shortly after 825 CE. So like, if you want, if you don't think about maritime trade, like Indian Ocean maritime trade, you may think, wow, that's really early (laughs) for like large scale trade. But in fact, they had been doing it for much, much longer than that. But there's a really great open access article um, called An Ordinary Ship and Its Stories of Early Globalism, World Travel, Mass Production, and Art in the Global Middle Ages. So this was full of of stuff from East Asia that they were bringing over. And it was um, the it was very well preserved where uh, silk had, there was no silk extant, but there was star anise that was preserved. Um, and so there's all of these like ceramics and, and ship things. full of five spice powder. Yeah. And so you've got, and, and you've also got spi- uh, spices. And so you've, you have, um, and so the fact that it was a Tao that had this stuff on it, they, among other things, like led them to believe that this had come from the Western end of the trade route of the network. It's not a route. It's not a road. So people talk about like the Silk Road, like it's not a road. It's a network. Yes. We'll get get to roads in a moment. Um, Okay. And, and so it, it came around it. So the, the way that it works, I couldn't find out cause I was trying to find out how long it took, like how long mm. it would take. I mean, we've got plenty of the elder telling us how long it takes to get from like That's Austria true. to Africa. Like I was, I was hoping to have something 
like that to go off mm. of. Um, but, but I couldn't find anything. Also, this is outside my area. So I'm like, I, maybe it exists if you know about it. LMK. The but, Dirt Podcast at gmail.com. But what I, what I did sort of know and what I re, re, like reinforced for myself is that this was seasonal. So I don't yes. know if it took the whole season, but it, you sort of like it had to, you had to get there so that you could come back. And yeah, so otherwise it gets very tricky. Oh, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, it just can't happen. And and so um, I, I want to quote um, this author's um, description of how this works, because we're good at we're going around the Indian Ocean. So. Wee. The great system of winds that we call the monsoons, after the Arabic for season, Malsin, powered pre-modern navigation in the Indian Ocean and South China Sea by taking vessels eastward in one season and back west in another. Named for the general direction from which they blew, the southwest monsoon took ships eastward in the summer months from around the beginning of June to around the end of September, the northeast monsoon in the opposite direction issued in the, in the winter months from around October, November to March. Annual variation meant these bi-directional winds could arrive early or late. And, and so you've got, you've got the time that you head out and then somewhere between three and six months later, depending on like when, when you catch them, you come back. Uh, and so it was seasonal trade mm-hmm. and, and so it's sort of like, you know, if you run out of your star anise, you just got to well, wait until the next, the next month. See monsoon. if your neighbor has some, I guess. And so that's, so that's sort of thinking about not only just because when we look at a map, you just think here to here. You're not thinking about, you aren't necessarily thinking about things like terrain, weather, um, what you've what you packed um and then also just environmental conditions of sort of the realities and sort of how it how it impacts Mm -hmm. your your daily your daily life um and then yeah right my my last sort of form of transportation like thing that you're taking um that i want to talk about before i get into the things that you will be on and the prestige of this section is the camel and i i want to talk um i don't want to talk too much about the camel that's a lie i know right i want to talk about the camel constantly but what i do want to talk about the camel is this thing that i found that i told you that i found that i couldn't believe that i found because i couldn't believe it existed Um, (laughs) oh i'm so excited i get to hear about it finally so i'm gonna put it in the show notes too um so there was a so the Royal Geographical Society, like uh, the British yep. one. The British there, one. There is something, there is a publication that was published called the RGS Expedition Handbook. Uh-huh. And you can you can find you can you can download these things, be in the show notes. But I could not wrap my head around the fact that there was something called Camel Expeditions by Michael Asher. And it is just like how to plan a camel expedition. Yeah. Like wow. you, read, you read a book about how to do this thing that is not necessarily <laughs> something you can learn by reading a book. No, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like it would be. And it's, 
I just, oh, that's a delight. It's it was so fun to read because I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? And so I just want to. Um, this might be why so many, you know, like the Australian explorers who were like, well, I'll bring this giant oak writing desk with me. Like, was that in the book? Was it like, don't maybe, bring. Basically. Um, huh. And it's just and a lot of and a, a fair amount of it is like. Go on camel expeditions for 20 years and then you'll know what to do. And there's a Uh. bit of that. I love camels. I love thinking about camels. Um, I love thinking about camel domestication and how it was a game changer. (laughs) I wish Um, we had a P.O. box so people could send you camelabilia. Oh, gosh. Camelana. Yeah. Like, I. Okay. Is it? um, Yes. Please, please do. They're. they're, To where? Where are people going to send it? To the internet? Yeah. We've discussed before. We discussed this before in um, the show and Telebrock episode. It's come up before that that camels were, the domestication of the camel was a game changer in terms of being able to perform overland trade and overland travel. Mm -hmm. So previously, lots of these areas, like lots of the, the regions in which the camel, like, does its best work um, are places <laughs> that you could only really get across coastally. Um, yeah. And so every time you would stop, you would have to pay for it. Like you would have to pay taxes and, 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 and then stuff that affects the, the end price of your merchandise. Yeah. And so it was, it was great for getting across things. It was great for evading the state whatever the state looked like, um, sure. wherever you were going. Um, and it just, it, it made getting farther, faster, easier. Um, and so I am going to have my new friend, Michael Asher, author of Camel Expedition. How, how to expedition. Yeah. I'm going to just read a little bit of it. Um, both to give you a sense of, uh, give me that flavor this book. Um, so this is the, the 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 section with the heading marching. What you're going on a camel march? Ah, uh, okay. So you got your expedition where you're just like, Woo-hoo! and then the march is like actually going from one point to the next, like doing okay. like the hard travel between slogging things yeah. that you're seeing. Yeah, slogging. Um, so. Asher writes, camels are never trotted on desert journeys as it is crucial to preserve their stamina. Remember, we just learned what trotting is. Yeah, I did. It's it's faster than walking. Thank you. Yep. Um, A walking camel covers about five kilometers per hour. So three miles per hour, more or less, according to the terrain. A reasonable day's trek will last from eight to 10 hours and cover 40 to 50 kilometers. That's 25 to 30 miles. Marching 10 hours a day, a camel journey of 120 miles should take roughly four days. 600 miles should take 20 days. So um, by camel... You could get from Nineveh to <laughs> to Babylon to Babylon in like a little bit more than a week. Ah, oh, zippy, yeah. But you wouldn't nec- You really wouldn't have done that because they they didn't know how to take care of Look, camels that they okay. took from just the Arab tribe. I'm just saying. I'm just. I don't want to. I don't want to conflate anything here. For long journeys, there will be all manner of random delays to add to your original estimate of days for the journey, (laughs) certainly on trips lasting more than a month. For these, you should add 
roughly another day in three for watering, resting, grazing, or administrative delays. So <laughs> just for someone to clear their inbox. Yeah. So you've got, um, it's like working with me, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's not unlike that. Yeah. Stop to water you every three days. Yeah. Yeah. So every, every third day you need to like give your camels a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slightly and, better and, uh, rate than horses. Every two days they well, rest ish. Just wait and okay. sweeten oh. the deal on these oh. camels. Oh, A strong camel can carry up to 300 kilograms for 50 kilometers per day over the period of a month. Um, So that's like 30 miles a day with 300 kilograms, which is a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, It's. I always do it backwards, and that's how I ended up with like like 12 pounds of beef. Um, Is it? Is it the a pound? I mean, yeah, a pound is 2.2 kilograms ish. Do I have it backwards? No, see, you did the kilometer thing. That's what I, I did. did, and that's how I ended up buying eleven pounds of beef in Morocco. That's and they so were, much beef. I also ordered it in French, so I was like, really. So, ah, oh, trop de boeuf. One one pound <laughs> is 0.45 kilograms. Wow, I would have gotten so that real wrong. That's how I almost. <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, so yeah. Mm. So, what'd you do with all that beef? It was for taco night. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up feeding we ended up feeding the street kitties a lot of beef. Oh that's oh that's yeah. I'm sure they loved it. Yeah. Um okay, so 300 kil- kilograms. Yeah. That's like f- over 500 pounds. It's a lot. Yeah. F- okay, for 30 miles a day over a period of a month. A more practical weight for desert treks, however, is between 150 and 200 kilograms per camel, which okay. is still a lot. I mean, more than I can carry. The number of camels you require will be decided by circumstances, but the ideal ratio is probably five camels to three humans. Man, I, I, I guess, are you assuming that these are fairly sort of placid camels? That's a separate no, section. Just, okay. okay. Um, camel no, this attitude. Is, no, there's like camel shopping elsewhere in here. But here's where it actually gets very interesting for what we're doing when we start to think about where we are going and okay. from where into where. Marching methods change from summer to winter. In the hot season, where noon temperatures may reach 50 degrees centigrade, which is like 120, yeah, um, camels will find it uncomfortable to travel in the early afternoons because it's never mind the 20 degrees. Yeah, Yeah. nobody Um, likes that. Experienced cameleers will start before sunrise, halt at about 11.30, and rest until around 1.500, so 3 uh, o'clock. There should be two cameleers per camel, because they each have two ears. Two cameleers. It is advisable to erect some kind of shelter for yourself during this period, or heat exhaustion may result. Can confirm. In winter, when camels shy from the intense night cold, cameliers will generally march from roughly sunrise to sunset with a short break at noon for a drink and some food. A shelter is unnecessary in these lower temperatures. Most professional caravaniers combine walking and riding as the most efficient use of their camels. Many Western novices are tempted to walk all day, either because they are nervous about mounting the camel me or out of the desire to prove themselves forgetting that the more physical effort they expend the greater will be their water loss 
This is fine if you're being resupplied by a motorized backup, but otherwise it's advisable to do as the desert people do. Walk during the cooler times, ride during the hot times. In East Africa, where camels are never ridden, marches are generally shorter and the country more inhabited and more watered than in the Sahara. So that part about camels being able to march on days that get up to 50 degrees centigrade Mm -hmm. is the other thing that makes camels exceptional because horses can't do that. So not only can camels carry more, they can carry more further and consistently faster. They can do it in more extreme climates. And, um, and, and so they can travel in places that horses cannot. Uh, and so that the camel. So I'll have the rest of that. Um, I'll have a link to the whole expedition guide. So you can also do like expeditions so by expedition. horse. Yeah, yeah. apparently. Um, a, it would also be a fun, I mean, I, I think there might be significant overlap between our listeners and enjoyers of D&D, but I bet that would be a fun way to kind of plan a D&D campaign. I use, did find some expedition like expedition notes. Yeah. I did find some stuff around like people doing like world building for like role playing and fantasy genres of like how far can you go? And I'm like, I want science. Um, but well, um, I want to wrap up this section, this section with, um, with some roads and the concept of the road. Um, not the book. We don't have to talk about that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. 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 Um, I knew an author. You knew a book person read book. Yay! <laughs> that person has not read book. Oh, okay. Well, I have I not read The Road. I can send it to you. It's a bummer. Um, I, so nope, no I, I want to talk about roads because when when we talk about roads, generally, we're talking about the thing that you travel on to get from one place yeah. to the other. Mm-hmm. Throughout much of the existence of roads, um, that's not really what a road has been. Like you wouldn't be traveling by road if you were just going from point A to point B. Um, you may be on like a path or something, but the road would be something that is designated for official, um, like official travel. And so roads come up with empires. Um, and so there, you need need a hugely hierarchical system to organize that much planning and labor. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like using it that you want, you want like a straight, a more or less straight shot to get from one place to the other that maybe you can station people along. Yeah. Yeah. It's for administrative stuff. Um, (laughs) it's also, it's, I mean, it's also useful for, um, charging tolls and taxes and having checkpoints. Um, that's something Uh else that roads are good for, but, um, I just want to talk about a couple roads. Um, uh, the first being the Royal Road. Uh, so this is the a Persian that the Persian Empire created, built. Um, and so Herodotus tells us about it. Now, um, I, I know that often Herodotus, when talking about the Persians, um, we should take stuff with grains of salt. But is is this more or less reliable? This is, this is really boring. So I think it's probably yeah, okay. pretty, so it's, pretty reliable. Okay. Um, and so he just talks about, so Herodotus describes the road between Sardis and Susa. And so Susa is uh, one of the capitals of the Persian empire. It's in what is today Iran. Um, and, and so this is going from, um, so it goes from Lydia, with, like Lydia and Phrygia, which is now in 
in, in Anatolia in what's today Turkey. So you're going from the coast. Is that, yeah, I was going to say, is that coastal? Yeah. Yeah. So you're going so, sorry from. Sorry to support. Yeah. So you're going from the, the coast um, inland, sort of mm-hmm. down through the Fertile Crescent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up in Susa, which is in uh, sort of south central Iran. So it's like on okay. the, below the Iran, like they're on the Iranian plateau. So it's, so Susa is, is sort of in contact with not only the Iranian plateau, but also the other side of the Gulf um, and, and all around there. So um, it's a very long road, but um, I'll include in the show notes, Herodotus is description of it um because he goes through like each section and you're like okay okay um okay. but um but he says this is at the conclusion of that he says this is the number of stages with resting spaces resting places as one goes up from sardis to Susa. if the royal road has been rightly measured the number of kilometers so this is updated measurement too with the translation yeah right he didn't say he did kilometers. kilometers yeah the number of kilometers from sardis to the palace of memnon is 2500 so if one travels 30 kilometers a day some 90 days are spent on the journey that comes out to 18.6 miles a day 18, okay. then that would be like four and a half to six hours of walking so that depends on whether you're going at an average pace or a leisurely pace um and and not taking into consideration any weather or terrain or the weight of your possessions or any sort of like physical discomfort that may be slowing you down. Um, So that's, that's sort of what Herodotus captures as how long it takes to travel on a road. And so this road was very important for um, administration of the Persian empire because it was a way to readily get there. So, Mm -hmm. um, but it still took you three months to get from, yeah, one section, one 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 end of the Persian Empire to the heart of it, presuming um, that you're you're on on human foot, right? Or however you're traveling. Well, I just um, horse. It wouldn't it be, but faster? but you know, but well, you're still going thirty kilometers a day, according to Herodotus. Yes, that, that's the sort distance of the is the same. The time, yeah. Is, yeah. So you could be, so you could be walking for six hours or you could be riding horse for fewer hours but you're still traveling that far that same distance that yeah. that's still what her what herodotus recorded as a a length maybe you have meetings maybe you've got you got stuff to do um, sure and so um another place where the roads were um a big part of imperial administration was in the inca empire uh and so the Inca roads were not used by by people who weren't part of like the administrative state. Um, so you wouldn't be traveling on the Inca not your, road. Not your average Joe Inca. Yeah, you wouldn't be. You, you're not commuting there. You're not taking things to a market in the next town over using that road. That road okay. was clear for um, official purposes, and okay. so it was it was mainly two main highways that ran north south across the empire um and and then there were so we've talked about kipus before we talked about them in i think deep cuts and the kipus are these are uh sort of knowledge storage devices that are used for that were used 
for, among other things, transmitting messages. And so Mm -hmm. you would have a runner who would carry the kipu and like pass on the message. And so much um, easier than um, carrying stone tablet messages. Yeah. And so I, I had seen that, um, that it could, that I had seen distances like that it, it, you could how fast how far you could get in a day with with a kipu uh, between 150 and 200 miles a day, and wow. I was just like, how? And so it was only in reading this that I realized how it worked, and I felt incredibly silly and also like the least fit person ever for thinking <laughs> that that was like possible. Um, it's not one person, <laughs> yeah, that, taking that it makes 100. Sense. Um, so it seems that they were um, stationed every so. The, the runners called Chaskis, Chaskis were stationed every six to nine kilometers. So you sprint. So it's still like a good That's sprint. A you're still, sprint. yeah. Yeah. You're still like running a 10 K. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, so you sprint to the next runner and then they take it and then they sprint. Ooh, and so and that's, at elevation too. Ooh. But they're always at elevation. I so know. It's sort of <laughs> just my lungs are imagining it. Yeah. Though. It's not. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, so moving things 150 to 250 miles, 200 miles a day is extremely fast. And so that's a good way to get information fast. Um, and then my final thing here is (laughs) Orbis. Um, Orbis. So Orbis is a project, um, called the Stanford Geospatial Network Model of the Ancient World. This is so um, cool. Which is extremely cool and i recommend you to waste an afternoon picking different places and just sort of like go fantasy booking your trip through the roman empire and i want to i'm going to read a paragraph of their how they describe themselves and then i'm mm-hmm. just going to like give you a couple examples and tell you to look it up yourself okay they, they write spanning one ninth of the earth's circumference across three continents The Roman Empire ruled a quarter of humanity through complex networks of political power, military domination, and economic exchange. These extensive connections were sustained by pre-modern transportation and communication technologies that relied on energy generated by human and animal bodies, winds, and currents. Conventional maps that represent this world as it appears from space signally fail to capture the severe environmental constraints that constraints that govern the flows of people, goods, and information. Cost, rather than distance, is the principal determinant of connectivity. For the first time, Orbis allows us to express Roman communication costs in terms of both time and expense. By simulating movement along the principal routes of the Roman road network, the main navigable rivers, and hundreds of sea routes in the Mediterranean, Black Sea, and coastal Atlantic, this interactive model reconstructs the duration and financial cost of travel in antiquity. Taking account of seasonal variation and accompanying a wide range, accommodating a wide range of modes and means of transport, Orbis reveals the true <laughs> shape of the Roman world and provides a unique resource for understanding, for our understanding of pre-modern history. That's so cool. Um, so what it's a, what a it's, big project. It's super super cool. You can pick what you can pick season or month. You can pick your start point your end point you can pick whether you're going by foot uh whether you're going by by horse um you can pick whether you can whether you're going 
fast on foot, slow on foot, slow by sea, fast by sea, which is basically like, is somebody... Lots of all these variables. Like, is somebody sailing it at all times? Are you only sailing during the day? Are you taking a slow boat? Um, And (laughs) you can, and then you can do by um, shortest distance, cheapest distance, and fastest distance. This is the beginning of Oregon Trail, except it's Rome. It's, it is. And so it'll tell you how much it costs in denarii. Um, and it'll <laughs> tell you how long it will take you. Um, and it'll, and so if we were to leave, so if we were to leave Roma today in December, mm-hmm. Roma, see, so <laughs> lovely Latin accent you have there. Uh, okay. so, so if we were going from Roma to Jerusalem, um, mm-hmm. We would probably be going by boat, and it's a pretty it's a pretty straightforward trip. It would take us the 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 Orbis tells us that it will take us if we're not worried about like if we're not worried about uh, money. Um, it'll sure. take us twenty point mean. one days to get there. Now, if the seas are slow, if there's you know bad weather or not good wind best boat yeah um it could take maybe 28.3 days now if we were taking a longer trip so if we were going Mm -hmm. from londinium so Mm. london so if we're going from londinium to jerusalem that would be 57.2 days Mm -hmm. but if we were a budget traveler (laughs) it would take 70 days is that a budget traveler that's affecting the speed of our boat that's what that's what's changing there. You may not be taking a boat. You may be ah, okay. walking. You okay. may be you may be walking across the continent of Europe. Um, okay. I just wasn't sure what was yeah. changing in terms so of yeah. it's so you you pick you enter these criteria That's so and then cool. it calculates it. It's very <laughs> fun. It's sort of like doing like five one one transit, like if you're in the SF Bay area and you're trying to figure sure. out like, the cheapest How, way to I get do? from this place. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like you're taking three buses and a ferry and it'll cost this much. And you're like, well, what if I want to get there faster? And so you can you can do that. So you can plan yeah. your itineraries you can, through you can the fantasy. Empire. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and so that's that's talking about individual movement. So either movement of me, a person that wants to get from one point to the other, or movement of me, a piece of information that is moving uh, <laughs> from one part of the empire administrative center to another. So that's kind of looking at I hope that was at all illuminating. I had fun. It was, I, I am illuminated. Informative it was. But that's sort of thinking about individuals and and very specific populations moving through their own landscape. But yeah. I want you, Anna, to Me? to talk us through like movement across landscapes on a much larger scale like mm-hmm. we talked about with um the uh, with Beringia or like the whole out of Africa um, idea, like that kind of movement that isn't, mm-hmm. you can't. A migration. You can't, it, yeah. It didn't take 70 days to get from, no, uh, for, for humans to get from there to there. Like, so what's, how do we do that? What's up with that? I will tell you what's up with that after a quick ad break. <laughs> Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. And we're back, and we're trying to understand how and where people moved around in the past. And one of the ways that that archaeologists try to understand this, because we can't go to Google Earth and click back in time to, you know, the Paleolithic or whatever, um, but you can sort of accomplish the same thing with computer modeling. Very, very basically, a computer model is a way to exclude variables and to predict certain events or predict movements of certain populations. Um, and, and it's a way to replicate the past in a very limited way. So I want to make that really clear. Like a computer model can only accomplish so much. It's not necessarily going to be an exact uh, way to recreate all of the factors that, that influence a person's or a, a group's decisions and, and movements in the past. But you can get some sense of um, you can get some sense of what movements looked like in the past or what environments looked like in the past with computer modeling. So take it with some grains of computer salt. Um, but to do that... Silica? To, <laughs> it is. That is computer salt. Um, well, I mean, it's not a salt. Acknowledge yes. me. I did, that was good. Okay. Good job. You knew a chemical. <laughs> with my knowledge of literature and your knowledge of science, we will. Oh my God! Just, just like <laughs> just like the people in the past, we will go far. Um, so, in order to make a computer model that that approximates what you're trying to get at, you have to have some sort of data that acts as a proxy or a stand-in for people. And so, there are various ways that researchers have tried to do this. So, I'll, I'll touch on a couple. One is DNA modeling, looking at haplogroups and looking at points of genetic divergence for certain traits. Uh, Amber, I hear you thinking, what is a haplogroup? Are you thinking that or do the you know only, what a haplogroup is? The only thing that I know about haplogroups is that it is the sub. It is discussed in some um, lyrics of a SoundCloud rapper I know. Oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> A haplogroup is a chunk of DNA. <laughs> I'm not going to wrap this. No, don't. It's a haplogroup. No, don't. Okay. Uh, a haplogroup is a chunk of DNA variations that tend to be inherited altogether. And so these follow biological male and female lines. And so, yes, genes get passed on singly from parent to offspring, but often um, – Genetic information comes in chunks. And so some of these chunks are observable through maternal or paternal lines. And so fathers pass on Y chromosome DNA to sons, not daughters, because daughters don't have Y chromosomes. Biologically speaking, I was like, I don't know, biological daughter. Uh, yeah, because that's a thing, right? Is that a thing? Just in a blanket sort of way, I'm when I say anything about male and female or son and daughter, I'm yeah. referring to biological sex. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So fathers pass on Y chromosome DNA to their sons and mothers pass on mitochondrial DNA to both daughters and sons. And so each time a human population has been geographically isolated enough to accumulate enough genetic variation to be a unique haplogroup, then there's a split. And so the earliest haplogroup, the original one, 
originated in Africa with the earliest Homo sapiens. And so you can sort of get a sense of how many splits there have been over time and in which populations, and you can map out different populations and their movements by tracing back these haplogroups. So if you trace back far enough, you get to Africa. That is one of the ways that we know that the the earliest humans uh, evolved in Africa. This came up in the sound SoundCloud rap. Ah, okay. Well, let's just call it Rapla Group. Anyway, <laughs> in addition to DNA modeling, you can do linguistic modeling, which is creating a phylogeny, which is a term usually used in genetics and talking about heritage. But in this case, um, you're mapping out language groups, figuring out how languages have changed over time and space to track group movement with the assumption that when people move different places, they, they are speaking their language and that language changes over time. And so we talked about this Mm, one billion years ago, uh, when we talked about the Proto-Indo-European languages and, and tracing the roots of that and, mm-hmm. and looking at trying to trace the movements of the original and, and, and thus the origins of the original Proto-Indo-European people. And the reason that I bring up these two methods of modeling populations is specifically because I want to talk about this study that combines both of these things and also bears. Bears? Bears, yeah. Bears, like, like, Ursus? Like Winnie the Pooh, yep. Like Bear. Like yep. Berkeley students? Sure. Um, Go Bears. Sports ball. A recent study in 2021 was published in the journal Ecology and Society, and this study took place in coastal British Columbia, Canada. And researchers sampled bear DNA from a number of locations throughout British Columbia. Some some were very remote locations, some were sort of more accessible. Um, and so to sample the bear's DNA, the researchers set up some bear bait in various locations. Um, the bait is they described had, like, as... They had uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police posing as young bears <laughs> that, <laughs> to, as yeah. a sting operation for bears. Yeah, like Bugs Bunny dressing in drag to... yep. The researchers described the bear bait as, quote, leaves and sticks covered with a stinky mess of oil and fish slurry, end quote. And um, the the bear bait was encircled by barbed wire, not to hurt the bears or anything, but there was just sort of lightly coiled barbed wire around the bait to brush against the bears and snag tufts of fur, which they would then use to, to get DNA samples. And so the researchers found that there were three unique groups of bears. I, I realize that you are your face is telling me this is not a bear podcast. What are you doing? No, so my face these, is my face is is telling you. Did we have to use the barbed wire? Well, otherwise the researchers would have to directly approach the bear and try to get hair from them, which would be but a lot more difficult like big, for everyone involved. But a big comb it just seemed very. Like I said, some of these were very remote locations where they had the. Okay. It was just like a, a little piece of barbed wire that would rub against the bear. It didn't hurt the bear in any way. Bears are fine. Okay. So the especially interesting part is that these bear groups' habitats, so these distinct DNA bear haplogroups, map almost directly onto the territories of three distinct indigenous linguistic family territories. And so this is, the researchers speculate that because humans and bears occupy similar ecological niches, so we're both we're both omnivores, mm-hmm. um, and in this area, the indigenous people have been, still are, and would have been um, highly dependent on 
like salmon runs mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that that bears are also dependent on we have areas interests with bears yeah exactly so areas of resource richness may have impacted both human and bear communities in similar ways isolating these groups in very similar ways um especially in this area where much of the seasonal resources are are sort of limitedly available they're seasonal so like yeah i know limitedly is not a word resources are highly seasonal and so that like the the resource catchment area so like the uh, resources that are available in a in a landscape that effectively isolated both human and bear groups such that language groups indicate that the humans the indigenous people living there separated into three distinct language groups and the bear groups separated into three distinct bear haplogroups I just thought that that was such a great study for modeling people using those data sets, but also bears. Yeah. I, I, I know. Bears I just thought are a I, proxy for humans because we... No, they're not a proxy, though. It's just that they... It's it's a really interesting sort of ecological coincidence. Okay. I don't know that, so I don't we, know that anywhere so else we, you could use bears as a proxy. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't claim that but um okay i just it was really cool that those two groups mapped onto one another um so closely yeah oh that's um, that's really interesting yeah, yeah um and i i included the link to that study so we can put it please in yeah. the show notes a final way that i want to talk about that's that's a data set for modeling as i'm just going to mention it because it's I think kind of fraught with difficulties and that's material culture and technology modeling where you can track the appearance of certain innovations or unique materials or manufacturing techniques in the archeological record. And that comes with the big old giant caveat that pots aren't people. You can't really completely use materials as a, as a way to say that the people who made these materials were here. You can't do that because materials travel. Um, and there um, are trade networks and yeah, so you know, I'll just, I'll just leave the, the material culture modeling there because I don't want to dive in there, but it's messy in there. And so, uh, I will just move us on to think about how crowded was the past. Yeah. How many people were around at any given time in a place? Like how many people were in a Neanderthal group? How many people were in various cities in the ancient past? Well, well, the first way that I tried to get at this was thinking about human group size, because our brains have the capacity to only hold so many social ties. There seems there's research that seems to point to um, a limit uh, of that capacity, but obviously that sort of depends on an individual and and their um, sort of level of you know desiring social ties, but. Increased social group size in general um, is thought to have been a part of Homo sapiens evolutionary success. Um, And so this is something that I found tied to a lot of ethnographic studies and a lot of um, kind of studies of contemporary hunter gatherers and their social group strategies and, and sort of how that works and what the role of these social groups are in sort of general survival. And so the researcher that I, the article that I was reading, um, talked about conversation groups and those are groups small enough so that conversations can be held, but large enough to spread that conversation over several people. Oh no. Breakout rooms. (laughs) Basically breakout rooms in zoom meetings. Yeah. Or, you know, like a, a cocktail party, but 
in these ethnographic studies, they, 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 um, the researchers sort of mapped out the content of these conversations and 60% of the time in human groups, conversation is gossip and recounting personal experiences. So it's much less sort of, um, practical, well, I say practical, but sort of, um, exchange of information in terms of like, so it's for social, it's for social purposes, not technological it's yeah, not like it's, it's weighted towards social rather than than strictly technological or uh, practical in the sense of yeah. acquiring resources, you know? Yeah. So group size does depend on resources. There if you exceed the the amount of resources that are available in a certain place, members of your group are going to die because not everyone is going to have enough resources. So, you know, they'll have a way of evening out a population. But if groups are organized in efficient ways, a small resource area can support more people. And so this is one of the things that is connected to maybe um, affecting Homo sapiens evolution, because when group size increased, re- researchers hypothesized that neocortical size, so brain size basically, also increased. And this has to do not all, I mean, the brain size increasing has to do with a lot of stuff, but presumably um, if you have more brain available, you can hold on to more social information because social, social intelligence is a thing is, you know, knowing, understanding, being able to read social cues, understanding your ties to different members of a group and, and where you stand in the group. All of that is, is a, is a form of intelligence. And so in these studies of contemporary hunter gatherer societies, the usual caveats apply with talking about, hunter-gatherer societies as a way to access the past. See episode yeah. 94 of this or very podcast. Last, or the week before last. Our sure. last yep. new episode. Yep. This is an article from 2014 by authors Lehman, Lee, and Dunbar. And so uh, I've got extremely rough ranges here based on their values for 20 contemporary hunter-gatherer societies. And they did this to kind of create a ranking of size. So much like you had the um, increasing horse gate, mm-hmm. uh, we've got increasing uh, terminology for increasing group size. Okay. So between 50 and 60 people is classified as a band. Okay. Between 100 and 150 people is a clan. And so all of these, these, let's say that band is the smaller social group. And then below that is like family groups. So Mm -hmm. families and extended families. And these groups are all kind of something that are is called fission fusion not to do with nuclear physics i will i'll get to that but uh, so band to, 50 to 60 you'll get to the the nuclear physics no i'll get i'll get to the the fission <laughs> okay. fusion aspect which is not nuclear physics okay 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 um so after a clan which is 100 to 150 people you get a mega band which is 500 to 750 people and then a tribe is 1000 to 1200 people and so after groups start to become big, like even 50 to 60 people is, is pretty big, especially if you are limited in your resources. A fission fusion structure typically happens where smaller family groups splinter off of larger groups, even within um, a permanent habitation like a city. So even if you have, even if we've moved away from hunter-gatherer societies into um, urbanized societies, you have, you tend to have these splits, these enclaves of people who are more similar to one another in their family or cultural ties than they are to the overall population of, of a large area as a whole, like a city. And so there's a really great example of this. Um, and I've included an article. I won't go into detail here because we are running on long here. 
Yeah. Um, we need to be, we need to be watered and fed. I need, yep. I need to, um, <laughs> we have been at a, somebody needs to check my hump. It, <laughs> anyway, uh, this, this example that I found, um, is our, I think, I think the project is still ongoing. I don't, I know, um, someone that I, a good friend of mine is working on, I think this site, mm-hmm. but this is, uh, a Oaxacan barrio at the city, at the site of Teotihuacan in what is today Mexico. And so this specific article deals with funerary customs and shows that in the burials within this barrio, so barrio is a, is a little neighborhood or an enclave. Um, it's a Spanish word. Yes, so, it is yeah. a Spanish word. Um, and so this, this neighborhood was full of people who had uh, emigrated from Oaxaca to Teotihuacan and were there sort of during the height of Teotihuacan's life as a city. Fluorescence. Um, fluorescence, yes. <laughs> um, this article shows that in the burials uh, within this barrio, the funerary customs were more similar to those back in Oaxaca than they were to uh, burials elsewhere in in this in the city of Teotihuacan and i think that that speaks especially to um, people trying to maintain a connection to their culture because funerary practice is such a deeply meaningful cultural yeah uh, cultural practice um and you know it comes along with with grief and also with ceremony and ritual um i think that that is one really extraordinarily good way of getting at who moved from where is to look at funerary customs but then also it's a way to look at whether or not a group was deliberately assimilating themselves or being assimilated um is to look at funerary practice and see if it was um sort of independent or reminiscent of a place of origin or if it was mm-hmm. over time starting to look more and more like what you see in, in the larger group of people. So, I mean, the short answer for how crowded was the past was depends on the time and place like anything else, because as crowded as it could be. Yeah. Well, no, like I mean, in some, sometimes it's more crowded than it should be, but, but if you're talking very basically about, ecology then any given resource area is it, it's going to get as crowded as it can be and then something's going to happen that's what i mean like it's it's as crowded as as sort of yeah that's a good way to, to look at support yeah and, and then, then either people change the environment crowded. yeah yeah either people either, leave that it, well they, they leave the environment they change the environment or or the, the people population in, decreases <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly those are pretty much which yet again is something that is very dynamic it's another thing that isn't Mm -hmm. that isn't static like you have places any of those things can happen yeah like you have in urban environments where resources are centralized um you can have a much denser population now are they thriving not necessarily i don't know yeah we'd have Uh, to ask them yeah. yeah well great chat that was that was a lot. I mean, I'm not yeah, just wait. talking about the length of this episode. I just mean like it's a lot to think about. And so yeah. so I hope I hope we've given you some really, really good nuggets to chew on. I know. Listeners. Um I'm sorry I made you cry, Amber. It's okay. Um, it's, it's, you weren't the first today. Time I won't be the last. Time <laughs> is time is uh imposing to think about. And so uh, we will, it's time for us to end this episode. (laughs) I'm a professional. And so thank you everyone so much for listening. We will be back in your ears 
next week for the the last episode before our little break. What? Yeah, isn't is it? Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Is. Next week. Is it? Yep. Oh, T- time, right? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, which you can find <laughs> on your podcast platform of choice and also at the dirt pod dot com where we also have all of our back episodes all 168 of them uh and woof and also merch and resources for educators and so much more go check it out go uh check our patreon out at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast if you want to support us with a couple bucks a month and uh hey we love that you listen you yeah. can also find us on on social media we we do post things there they're fun yeah, uh, we're we're on Facebook at the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. And yeah, that's also and on if, our website. And if you want to follow us individually, it's not on our yeah. website. Anna is at Anna Goldfield Anna, on Twitter. Yes, yeah, and mm-hmm. I am at Amber Dextrous. See what she did there. <laughs> so you can stuff. follow us. We yeah, sure. Also talk about ourselves. <laughs> And our lives and our individual work. And some archaeology. And, and people have been really enjoying the uh, the tweet I, I did with that man and the sheep skull doing a science upon it. Uh, so yeah, that, my, my that's there for you to enjoy. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What a king. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.